to see you. Hopefully you daddies got uh, breakfast in bed like I did. And it, it's, it's not a difficult recipe, so they, they got it mostly right. So that's all right. Well, turn with me in your Bibles to Mark chapter 2. Mark chapter 2. You may have noticed there wasn't a children's talk this morning, and that's because we have communion today. So that's why we just get on straight with things and uh, we'll have a normal children's talk next week or whatever we do in our soundbite. Have a look at Mark chapter 2. There we go. Mark chapter 2. And let me say, if you're a visitor, it's great to have you with us. We're working on a series in Mark's Gospel. Uh, why don't I pray and then I'll explain to you what we've been doing. We've got a lot of ground to cover today, but I think you're going to see amazing things from God's Word. So let me pray. <clears throat> Father God, please won't you come and speak to us. We are a, a, a poor people spiritually, hopelessly dependent on you. And so a word from you this morning would be so gratefully accepted. Come and speak to us. Encourage us, lift us up, convict us where necessary. But above all else, rather than have us think of ways to please you, help us to see in Jesus that you are well pleased with us. Encourage us, we pray, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so our series is called Jesus, Who is Jesus? Mark's Gospel, Who is Jesus? And if you look at the flyer, what it says there is, Jesus, who do you say I am? Who do you say I am? And as I was thinking about that series, it suddenly occurred to me, who cares? Who cares? Does it really matter who Jesus is? really is. Does it matter? Isn't his teaching more important? Isn't what Jesus teaches us more important than who he is? See, if you think about it, most religions, it doesn't matter who the founder is, who they really are. What matters is their teaching. So let's take Buddha. It doesn't matter who Buddha is, because it's not what who Buddha is that matters. It's his Dharma, his teaching that counts. And so if you had to meet Buddha, he would say that to you. He would say, don't worry about me. It doesn't matter who I am. Look to my teaching. Don't look to me. Look to my teaching. Or let's take Muhammad. Muhammad would say, I'm just a man like you. I'm a prophet, but I'm a man like you. Don't worry about me. Look at the Qur'an, and the word Qur'an means recitation, recitation, however you say the English version. The point is, is that it's what God says, not me, don't worry about me. Or listen to Gandhi. This is what Gandhi says about Jesus. To me, Jesus was one of the greatest teachers humanity has ever had. To his believers, he was God's only begotten son. Could the fact that I do or do not accept this belief have any more or less influence in my life? 
Is all the grandeur of his teaching and his doctrine forbidden to me? I cannot believe so. There you have it. What Gandhi thinks is it doesn't matter what you believe about Jesus. It's the grandeur of his teaching that's more important. Jesus' identity is not key. Jesus' teaching is key. Is that true? So our series is called Jesus, Who Do You Say I Am? Does that really matter? Here we go again, talking about who Jesus is. Can't we just get on to what he teaches us? What would Jesus say to Gandhi? What would Jesus say to Mahatma Gandhi? Would he say to him, don't worry about who I am. Just follow my teaching. Would he say that? Never mind, and I'm going to switch to lawyer mode, never mind how illogical that is, because why would you follow someone's teaching if you don't know who they are? Someone's teaching is only as good as who they are. But ignoring that, what would Jesus say to Gandhi? Well, I'll show you what he says. Have a look at Mark chapter 8. Mark 8. Look at what Jesus says in verse 27. Mark 8 verse 27. This is what makes Jesus so different from every other religious founder. Verse 27, And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way he asked his disciples, Who do people say that I am? See, for Jesus, who you say he is matters. His identity is important. Who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, others say Elijah, others one of the prophets. And he asked them, and here's our question of our series, who do you say that I am? And Peter answered him, you are the Christ. And he charged him not to tell anyone. Here's the point. Jesus' identity is key, not just his teaching. And here's the big question, why? Why does it matter who Jesus is? Why can't we just follow what he says? Why? Listen. Listen so that you have to get this. This is so important. It's because for Christianity, it's not what we do that matters. It's what Jesus does that matters. In other words, his identity is absolutely key. Because it's what he does that matters, not what we do. In every, just think about this, in every other religion, all it is, is a bit of advice. Every other religion is a bit of advice. Here is the way that you can save yourself. Here is a format in which you can save yourself. Here is another format in which you can save yourself. It's only in Christianity where the identity of Jesus is absolutely key because in Christianity it says you can't do anything. He has to do it. Therefore, who he is is of utmost importance. And that's what Mark's Gospel is all about. Because Mark's Gospel, what we've just read there, is a key turning point. The first half of Mark's Gospel is Jesus' identity. Who is Jesus? And the second half of Mark's Gospel is what we must do to save ourselves on the basis of who Jesus is. 
Well, no. It's who is Jesus and then what did he come to do? Christianity is not about what we do. It's about who Jesus is and what he has done. And of course there's a response to that and you'll see that. But that's the structure of Mark's gospel. So what we're going to do today, and it's a very long passage, but we're, not going to, we're just going to look at it as, in a kind of like overview way. You'll see how. We're going to study who Jesus is. And first up, we are going to see that Jesus is the bridegroom who starts the feast. So have a look with me at John chap- um, Mark 2, verse 18. <coughs> have a look at Mark 2, verse 18. Everyone there, we've got a lot of ground to cover, so I'm going to read it section by section as we go through. Now John's disciples, are you all there? Mark 2 verse 18. Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. And people came and said to him, Why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests fast? while the bridegroom is with them. As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, the new from the old, and the worst tear is made. No one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is destroyed, and so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. Okay, so what are we doing? Who is Jesus? And first up, Jesus is the bridegroom who starts the feast. Okay, so what do we mean? Well, look where Matt ended last week. Look in your Bibles. Where did we end up last week? Look at verse 16. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that Jesus was eating with sinners and tax collectors. So there's Jesus. And what's he doing? He's having a feast. He's eating, unfortunately, in bad company. Because he's eating with sinners and tax collectors. And so the religious people say to him, why are you hanging around with people like that? Why are you eating with people like that? And that leads straight on to verse 18. Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. They're doing the opposite of what Jesus is doing. Here's Jesus chewing on a chicken and downing a coke with a whole lot of sinners. And the Pharisees are fasting. They're beating their bodies up. It's a great contrast. And the big question, of course, is why? Why do we fast? Why do we work so hard at our religion and you're having a party? And you're eating with sinners. Why, they say in verse 18, why do the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not? And Jesus answers in three pictures. Jesus gives them three pictures. First, a bridegroom. Secondly, clothing. And thirdly, wine. And all three pictures are saying the same thing. It's impossible to carry on the way you were. When Jesus enters the scene, it is impossible to carry on the way you were. 
First of all, the bridegroom picture. Verse 19, Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. Jesus says that you can't keep being all morbid when the bridegroom arrives because he's the party. It's rude and insulting. In other words, he's very clearly claiming to be the bridegroom, the centre of attraction, the centre of the party. By the way, he does hint that he's going to leave in verse 20. The days are coming when the bridegroom is taken away from them. So he is saying, I'm not here for good yet. I'm going to go. And they will fast in that day. And by the way, that's not the same kind of fasting. He's not saying they'll keep fasting forever. What he's saying is they'll fast on one day, that day. So sadness is coming. It's a little hint that he's going to die. And and he'll get clearer about that as we go along. But the point here is that fasting is inappropriate. What is appropriate is feasting and joy. Why? Because the reason for the party is here. Jesus. The bridegroom is here. Now, what do you need for a good party? Other than me and my moves. What do you need for a good party? Well, you need clothes. And you need wine. And that's what he goes on to speak about. First of all, in verse 21, he talks about clothes. And he says, no one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch turns from it. The new from the old and the worst tear is made. You need good clothes. You also need good wine. No one puts new wine into old wine skins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins. The wine's destroyed. So are the skins. New wine is for fresh wine skins. What Jesus is saying is it doesn't matter if you're talking about shrinking. That's a patch. New things shrink. You know I don't know anything about haberdashery. But I think that's what he means. He's saying that it doesn't matter if it's shrinking. And with wine, it doesn't matter if it's expanding. It's a lovely contrast. Whether it's shrinking or expanding. The point is, the old cannot handle the new. Now, who does this guy think he is? That with his arrival, everything's brand new. That's that's an astonishing to say. And that's what he means at the end. New wine is for fresh wineskins. Here's the point. Jesus is the bridegroom who starts the feast. With his arrival, old categories of relating to God must give way. Everything must give way. Don't try and mix it. Oh, yes, no, I know Jesus has come, but I still need to do my bit. And I, No. With the arrival of the bridegroom, it's all overs. It's brand new. And this was the great Jewish hope. Folks, there's a party coming. And you know who the main guest is? God. See, when God made Adam and Eve... God used to walk and talk with them. He used to be with them. We read in Exodus 24, or 34, sorry, when the elders of Israel went up Mount Sinai, guess what they did? They sat down and they ate with God and they saw him. Have a look at that in Exodus 24. It was a feast with God. And the prophets prophesied that one day there would be this feast with God. Look at this, Isaiah 25. 
On this mountain the Lord of hosts will make for all the peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food, full of marrow, of aged wine, well-refined. There's a party coming. A massive party. I, I don't know if uh, you know LMFAO and all those bands will be there, but I know the food's going to be amazing, and there's going to be rich wine, and we're going to sit at this banquet and eat with God. And that was the great Jewish hope. They looked forward to the day when they would feast with God. And here is Jesus in verse 16, and what's he doing? He's acting it out. And the scribes and the Pharisees, when they saw Jesus eating with sinners and tax collectors, Jesus is saying, I'm the bridegroom. I've come to start the feast. It's time to turn up the volume on the joy. It's a new way of relating to God. By the way, I found a YouTube clip on where it's all going. Because ultimately, this is going somewhere. Would you like to see my YouTube clip? Have a look at Revelation. 21. Look at Revelation 21. This is where the feast's going. Revelation, last book in the Bible. Revelation 21, 1 to 4. Then I saw, keep your uh, fingers in Mark's Gospel. Then I saw a new heaven. And a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them. They will be his people. God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death will be no more. Neither will there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain. I mean, what kind of party is that? Not even sore legs the next day from all those moves that you try and do that you shouldn't. For the former things have passed away. Here's the point. God feasted with God's people. God promised a day when that feast will come. Jesus is here in Mark's Gospel and he's saying that he is the bridegroom who starts the great feast. What's the application? Well, folks, the application is come to the feast. Don't Harsh treatment of the body will not bring you closer to God. The day of rejoicing has come because Jesus is the bridegroom who's come to start the feast. And by the way, we will be having communion later. And that is a little snapshot of that great banquet that we will be having with God. So, who is Jesus? Jesus is the bridegroom who starts the feast. Secondly, Jesus is the Son of Man who brings true rest. So have a look at verse 23. In Mark's Gospel, Mark 2, verse 23, One Sabbath, he was going through the grain fields, and as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain. And the Pharisees were saying to him, Look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? So first of all, you're not fasting. You know, what's with you? And now you're not uh, uh, obeying our rules of the Sabbath. And he said to them, Have you never read what David did when he was in need and was hungry, he and those who were with him? How he entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar, the high priest, and he ate the bread of the presence, 
which is not lawful for any but for the priest to eat. And he also gave some to those who were with him. And he said to him, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Jesus is the Son of Man who brings true rest. Now what was the Sabbath all about? What are we doing, by the way? Don't lose, train, don't lose your train of thought. We're watching our old categories of religion are being blown apart as Jesus comes. And all of that is to try and understand who is he. But what was the Sabbath about? The Sabbath was about two things. First of all, in Exodus chapter 20, we are told that the Sabbath commemorates God as creator. The Lord, in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, and on the seventh day he rested. So the Sabbath was instituted as a reminder that God is the creator. Why do you think we, God designed us that we all sleep? Have you never realized that half your life is a waste? Why do we sleep? Although I must say it's not one of my strong areas. But why do we all sleep? Because it teaches you that you're not in control. That God is still governing the planet. And when you fast asleep, I know this is hard to accept, the moon and the tides and the earth will still turn without you. It teaches us that he is the creator. But Exodus chapter 34 gives us another reason for the Sabbath. And that is that God is the redeemer. He's not just the creator of everything. He's the one who redeems his creation. You can read that in Exodus 34. So Sabbath, resting on the Sabbath for Israel, meant, remember, God is creator, God is redeemer. Now along comes Jesus and his disciples, and they start breaking the Sabbath. And Jesus justifies it by his authority. Look at what he says in verse 27. And he said to them, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So first of all, what Jesus says is that the Sabbath was never meant to oppress man. Rather, man was made before the Sabbath. So you know that. Man was made on the sixth day, and on the seventh day God rested and instituted the Sabbath. So the Sabbath day of rest was meant to serve man, not man serve the Sabbath. In other words, the well-being of man, the salvation of man, is more important than Sabbath observance. God requires that we seek to love people ahead of keeping the Sabbath because the Sabbath was made for man. But here's the question. On what authority can Jesus make these kind of judgments? On what authority? Who does he think he is? And the answer is verse 28. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. What Jesus is saying is, and we don't have time today, but we've done it before and we will in the future, is Jesus points back to that man in Daniel chapter 7. Do you remember Daniel chapter 7? Thrones were set in heaven. It's a vision Daniel gets in his head. And there's thrones in heaven and one like the Ancient of Days was seated on the thrones and the judgment books were open. It's this picture of this massive judgment day with God at the center. And suddenly up pops the central figure. Look, I can't tell you how big he was. Was he that big? I'm not in Daniel's head. But there, there was this figure, and his name is the Son of Man. And this person walks up to God, 
and all authority in heaven and earth is given to this person. And his title is Son of Man. And strangely enough, the angels also worship him, which is a puzzle, really. But that's another subject. And here is the Son of Man who gets all authority. Now, here is Jesus. And what does he say? The Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Jesus is saying that I am the Son of Man who has all authority. I will tell you what to do with the Sabbath. And the answer is that I am telling you that the Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. Therefore, keeping religious rules and ceremonies is not as important as the well-being and salvation of people. But more than that, he outlines the whole principle in chapter 3. So what he does is he demonstrates it. Look at it in chapter 3, 1 to 6. Again, he entered the synagogue And a man was there with a withered hand. And they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. You know, I've got people, this is off the point, Dwayne, should you? Yes, okay, I will. How many people look at Jesus to see whether they can accuse him? They don't come to Jesus with an open mind. You know, okay, all right. Who is Jesus? What relevance has he got? They don't come like that. They come, oh, I'm going to find fault. I'm going to find fault with something he said or something he did. Anyway, it was like that in Jesus' day. It will be like that in our day. So they come to him to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. They're not looking to Jesus going, oh, what a cool guy. Do you see how he heals people's hands? Oh, he's breaking our rules. And verse 3, and he said to the man with a withered hand, come here. And he said to him, to them, sorry, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm? To save life or to kill? But they were silent because what were they were thinking? They were thinking, never mind doing good or bad, just keep the rules. Stick to the rules. Verse 5, and he looked around at them with anger. And grieved at their hardness of heart, he said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out and his hand was restored. Isn't that amazing? Jesus says, I don't care about your rules. The Sabbath was made for man. The well-being and salvation of people is more important than your religious rules. Look at their response in verse 6. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him how to destroy him. And by the way, that's an astonishing sentence. The Pharisees and the Herodians. That's like, um, uh, what was her name, Pauline Hansen? One nation with the Greens coming together to fight Jesus. I mean, you couldn't get more further apart as the Pharisees and the Herodians. They hated each other's guts. And yet they come perfectly together to go against Jesus. That's why the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain. Take their stand together against the Lord and against his Christ. So what Jesus is doing here in verse 1 to 6 is he's saying the same thing. But instead of saying he's got authority over the Sabbath, he's demonstrating. But again, Jesus shows that the Sabbath was made for man. Not man for the Sabbath. And when he comes to earth, every category that we had is blown apart. So let's, Dwayne, stop being, uh, you know, get down to it. How do we celebrate the Sabbath in our church? 
First of all, I want to say that if you are a Sabbatarian, you are one of those people who thinks the Sabbath is one day in seven, you are welcome, you will be respected, cherished, loved in this church. It's not an issue we're going to divide over. Paul says one man steams one day special, another steams them all the same. Let each be fully persuaded in his own mind. So in our church we don't divide on this issue. However, I do want to point out the way that we think is that we keep the Sabbath when we go to Jesus. Have a look at Hebrews chapter 4. Have a look at Hebrews chapter 4. Hebrews chapter 4. Keep your fingers in Mark. You all there? Have a look at Hebrews chapter 4 from verse 1. Anyone got a page number? 1205. Thanks, Paul. That was quick. Spot the, the school principal or something to that effect. He, uh, Hebrews 4. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest, that's the Sabbath, the rest, still stands, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them, because they were not united by faith with those who listened. For we who have believed enter that rest. As he said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. For he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way. And God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again in this passage he said, they shall not enter my rest. Since therefore it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience. Now watch this. Again, he appoints a certain day. God says, I made my Sabbath uh, with you. I gave you a rest, but you didn't believe me. He's talking about Israel. So what God does is he appoints another day. Verse 7. Again, he appoints a certain day. And what's that day? Which day of the week is it? What does it say? Today, saying through David, so long afterwards, in the words already quoted, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. So our understanding is this, that Jesus is the Son of Man who brings true rest. Jesus said, Come to me, all you that labor are heavy laden, I will give you rest. We believe that when you turn to Jesus and every single day you live in the grace that is His, the Sabbath commemorates God as Creator and as Redeemer, and both of those things are true in Jesus Christ. The bottom line is we celebrate the Sabbath every day. Every single day that's called today. But you, don't, you might have a different reading on that. You are most, most welcome. My point, though, is that the gospel of Jesus Christ is all, not just all you need. It's all you could ever want. Thirdly, Jesus is the Son of God who conquers Satan. So have a look at verse 7 to 12. 
Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea, and a great crowd followed from Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem and Idumea and from beyond the Jordan and from around Tyre and Sidon. And when the great crowd heard all that he was doing, they came to him, and he told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd, lest they crush him. For he had healed many, so that all who had diseases pressed around him to touch him. And whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. And he strictly ordered them not to make him known. What Jesus demonstrates here for us, very clearly, is his complete mastery over Satan. That's what he says in verse 27. Look in verse 27. No one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. So what is Jesus saying? Jesus is saying, I'm the strong man. In fact, Jesus is saying, I'm the stronger man. And I've come to bind Satan and plunder his house. I don't want to dwell on this because I think it's pretty clear. Jesus is the Son of God who conquers Satan. But I just want to say one thing. I had a coffee with a lady this week. Very interesting. And I'm not criticizing. I'm going to speak as graciously as I can. She's lovely. She's coming out of this. But she was telling me that in her former church, there you all are as Christians, there is this man in the Midlands who you give $270 to. And then you go to his little thingy up in the farmy Midlands up the hills type area. And for a day and a half, he practices a thing on you called deliverance ministry. So you've been a Christian for all these years. But did you know you had evil spirits still oppressing you? But don't worry, for $270, you can have them all expelled. It's a deliverance ministry. Folks, that's the most appalling thing I ever heard. And thank God the woman I was talking to has come out of that. That's ridiculous. My Bible teaches me that Jesus is the Son of God who conquers Satan. That when you turn to Jesus, either he saves you and delivers you, or he doesn't. Utterly, absolutely, completely. Our deliverance ministry is in Jesus Christ when we turn to him. You know, as a lifeguard, you can, you can tell I was a lifeguard for a long time. And you know what, I, I, say, I had to say to her, you know, that makes me a better lifeguard than Jesus. Because I've often had to swim out uh, in my speedo. Not that I want to paint any bad pictures for you. But I, I had to swim out, and then I'd fetch a girl or a guy who's drowning, haul them, take them to the beach. Never once in all the years that I was a qualified lifeguard did I ever rescue someone and halfway back to the beach say, listen, I've done my bit here now. You need to sort out yourself. I never did that. My job was finished when they were panting and vomiting on the beach. How can I be a better lifesaver than God? If God saves you, he saves you. Or he doesn't. So you might say, yeah, but Dwayne, what about those Christians who still struggle? Two things. Either they're not Christians, which I think is largely the case. Or their own sin is holding them back. Because the Bible paints this picture of this raging war inside here. But it's not between you and the devil. It's between you and your own sinful heart. Stop blaming the devil. 
We give him far too much credit. Let me put it to you this way. Actually, our entire ministry at this church is a deliverance ministry. We, that's all we do. We preach Jesus. And as we preach Jesus Christ and his authority and his power and who he is, so Satan is cast out of people's hearts. Why? Because Jesus is the Son of God who has absolute mastery over Satan. Finally, Jesus is Yahweh God who gathers a new people. Look at verse 13 to verse 19. And he went up on a mountain and he called to him those whom he desired and they came to him. And he appointed twelve whom he also named apostles. You're not going to believe me. You're not going to believe me, but this is true. I met up with someone else this week. You see, this sounds like a preacher telling you stories. Yeah, Dwayne, who didn't you meet up with this week? But I really did. I met up with a lovely guy in another church. Uh, it's a long story. We met in a coffee shop, etc. You think I frequent coffee shops for a living, and it's partly true. Um, but I met up with this guy, and would you believe it? His dad is an apostle. So what his dad does is he goes on apostolic journeys all over Australia. Isn't that great? Unfortunately, when I read this, his name's not here. Because this, his name's William. And I don't see William here. Look at what it says. And he appointed twelve whom he named apostles so that they might be with him and he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. And he appointed the twelve. And I'm not going to read it, but their names are written down there. If you're not one of those people, you're not an apostle. You might be an apostle delegate. And we read in the New Testament that the apostles, with their authority, sent out others. But it's not an ongoing thing. The Roman Catholic Church is wrong when they call the Pope the Apostle of Jesus Christ. He's not. Because his name is, what is his Ratzinger. His name is Cardinal Ratzinger. I don't see a Ratzinger here. Twelve. That's it. Twelve apostles. Now, that's not our point. Here's the most important point. What is Jesus doing? Well, in the Old Testament, do you remember that God gathered, how many tribes did he gather to himself? Thank you. That's right, Heather. Twelve. And God went up on a mountain. And God brought these twelve tribes to him. And they had names. Levi, Issachar, Dan, Zebulun, etc. Judah, Benjamin. And these twelve tribes gathered in front of God. And you know what God did? God commissioned them to be his witnesses. They were a kingdom, Exodus chapter 19, a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. These 12 tribes, meeting with God up the mountain, will be the people of God and they will be his witnesses. And you know what the New Testament does? The New Testament takes that exact language from Exodus 19 and applies it to the church. And it says, you are a chosen race a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Now, what is Jesus doing? Think with me. Jehovah God, twelve tribes on a mountain, you are my witnesses. 
come down one, twelve Jewish apostles on a mountain. You are my witnesses. And who's here? Jesus. See, here's my question. Why didn't Jesus appoint eleven apostles and he was the twelfth? Why does Jesus stand outside the twelve? What is he saying about himself? He is Jehovah God. He is Jehovah God gathering a new people. These twelve will be the foundation of a brand new people. Well, now, this is what we've seen. Jesus is the bridegroom who starts the feast. Jesus is the Son of Man with all authority who brings true rest. Everything the Sabbath was pointing to, Jesus brings. Jesus is the Son of God who conquers Satan, the ultimate deliverance ministry. Jesus is Yahweh God who gathers a new people. How do we respond to this? What do we do? You've got two options. Is Jesus mad? Or is Jesus bad? Is he mad, i.e. he's not well and he's got it all wrong? Or is he bad, he's lying? not telling the truth. And those two accusations are thrown at Jesus in the rest of Mark chapter 3. Look at it and then we'll be finished. First of all, his family think he's mad. His family think he's mad. Look at verse 20. Then he went home and the crowd gathered again so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him. They had a white coat and leather belts with them. For they were saying, he's out of his mind. His own family said, Jesus, you're nuts. You're mad. What's Jesus' response to his family? Is Jesus mad? What's his response? Well, look at what he says in verse 31. And his mothers and brothers came, and standing outside, they sent him and called him, saying, uh, Jesus, I think you better come home now. <laughs> and a crowd was sitting around them, and they said to him, Your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, Who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother, sister, and mother. His family says he's mad. Jesus says, well, it depends who you think my family is. My family are those who do the will of God. Jesus is saying, I'm not mad. If you really do the will of God, you will know who I am. But it's not just mad. Is he bad? Well, that's what the Pharisees say. Look at verse 22. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, He's possessed by Beelzebul. And by the prince of demons he casts out demons. Do you all know who Beelzebul is? Well, Baal-zebub the, means the Lord, the fertility Lord in Canaan. And the Jewish people very naughtily switched a letter around and made it Baal-zebul, which is a slang word which means Lord of the Flies. You know that old movie where all the kiddies go nuts on the island, Lord of the Flies? Well, it comes from that. Anyway, Lord of the Flies, why was I telling you that? He's possessed by Beelzebub, and by the prince of demons he casts out the demons. And he called them to him, and he said to them in parables, How can Satan cast out Satan? 
If a kingdom's divided against itself, that kingdom can't stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house won't be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he can't stand. He's coming to an end. I love that. He's coming to an end. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. How can you say I'm bad? I'm beating Satan up. I'm plundering his house. I'm casting out demons, as I've demonstrated to you. How can you say I'm bad? Who plays Scrabble? You know we love Scrabble around here, so I'm giving you a new word. Intercalation. Ever heard of that word? Intercalation. Here's Mark. Look what Mark's done. Why has he put Jesus is mad... 20 to 21, family, and then Jesus only answers it in 31 to 34. And in between, Jesus is bad, and Jesus answered it. What, Mark, surely that part belongs over there. Why don't you keep those stories together and put that, why are you splitting it up? That's called intercalation. Cool word, eh? You've got to love Scrabble. Folks, the reason Mark does that, by the way, if you don't like big words, you can just call it a Markan sandwich. He does it all the time through Mark's gospel. It is. <laughs> but it's well known. It's a Markan sandwich. What he's doing, is Jesus mad? Is Jesus bad? He puts them like this so that you will know that it's the same thing. To say that Jesus is mad or to say that Jesus is bad is equally unacceptable. Both are blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. And have a look at what he says. Right in the center of the Mark and Sandwich, we're getting to the slice of ham. Right in the middle. Look at what Jesus says in verse 28 and 29 and 30. Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man, and whatever blasphemies they utter, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying, he has an unclean spirit. What does that mean? I hope everyone here is going, (gasps) hope I haven't done that. What does it mean to blaspheme against the Holy Spirit? I'll tell you what it doesn't mean. It does not mean that Father, Son and Holy Spirit... (gasps) The Holy Spirit's more important. So you walk down the road, you kick your toe. If you say Jesus Christ, you'll be forgiven. But if you say Holy Spirit, you're gone. You're toast. It can't mean that. No. Mark's structure helps us understand what it means. The answer is simple. Can I give it to you very simple and then explain it? It's to reject Jesus Christ. Blasphemy against the Holy Spirit is to reject Jesus Christ. It's to say that Jesus is mad. Or it's to say that Jesus is bad. Here's why. Because Jesus Christ, and we know this from Mark chapter 1, in the power of the Holy Spirit, is going around demonstrating that he's the bridegroom who starts the feast, that he's the Son of Man who brings true rest, that he's the Son of God who conquers Satan, that he's Yahweh God who gathers a new people. This is the Holy Spirit's testimony to Jesus. To go and look at Jesus and say, "Uh, uh, uh, you're nuts, you're bad is to blaspheme the Holy Spirit. 
because you're rejecting his testimony to Jesus. And friends, that's why you can never be forgiven. Because if you cut yourself off from Jesus, how can you be forgiven? How You, you know what, we've said this before, God doesn't have a big carpet in heaven and he takes your sins and when none of the angels are looking, he sweeps them under the carpet. If you don't come to Jesus, you can't be forgiven. You will never, ever be forgiven if you don't come to Jesus. If you reject the Holy Spirit's testimony to Jesus, you have blasphemed the Holy Spirit. There's no hope for you. So don't do that. Come to Jesus and believe what he says about himself. Don't be like Gandhi. Don't make that fatal mistake of saying Jesus is a teacher, whether or not he's who he says is not important. Don't make that mistake. Believe what he says about himself. Turn to him and you will show that you have not blasphemed the Holy Spirit. We're not going to take questions and answers today because we're going to come to communion. But let me just come back to one last thing. Folks, Jesus is the bridegroom who starts the feasts. The truth of the matter is that Christianity is actually joy. It's a deep-seated joy. And what we do when we come to a communion is, of course, we get sincere and we get somber, not, not morbid, but we want to think. There's nothing wrong with that. But in our hearts, there's this bubbling joy of anticipation that everything we could long for This is a little pointer that one day we will feast with him. So with that attitude in mind, why don't we come to communion together? And I'm going to ask the elders to come up and uh, join me here.